0: Well, thank you to the worship team. We're going to continue actually in Colossians chapter 3 this morning. For those of you joining us as guests, we preach through books of the Bible here, and we are working our way through Colossians, and providentially, I think it goes well with the baptisms that we started out with this morning. And it was a wonderful way to begin our morning uh, through baptisms, through young men and women committing their lives to following the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrating their love, demonstrating their obedience to Jesus in his word. The practice of baptism is a mark of a true church, and it is an act of worship. No matter where you look in church history, you will find a fairly consistent definition of what a church is, and certainly since the time of the Reformation, you see this. And John Calvin succinctly wrote, wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard, And the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper administered according to Christ's institution, there it is, not to be doubted. We have a church of God. You had seen the quote that I emailed out earlier from Benjamin Keach, a Baptist preacher uh, in the 1600s, and he noted that the immersion of believers was blessed food for the soul, since it spoke of the way of salvation. To not only those who are baptized, but also to all of us who get to witness such baptisms. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is what we have in baptism, a powerful reminder of the person and work of Jesus. And yet there's one practice of baptism that we don't do anymore as a church. It's not a biblical thing, but it's something that the church did in the first couple of centuries that represented part of this truth. The, the practice of baptism had one more symbolic act to it than we do. After a profession of faith, the baptismal candidate would symbolize the radical change in their lives as they came up to the baptismal chamber. And they would remove their old clothes, representing their old life. Then they would enter the baptismal waters and after being immersed in water and raised again, symbolizing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, they would emerge from the baptismal waters and be given a bright white set of clothing that represented the new life in Christ that they would live pursuing righteousness. Then, new in Christ and being joined to his people through baptism, they'd be offered the right hand of fellowship. You'll actually see that term in our own constitution And what that meant was they would then be invited to join the congregation of baptized believers and participate in the Lord's Supper. It was symbolism that's, like I said, not biblical, but it sort of mirrors the text that we find ourselves in this morning, which is Colossians chapter 3, second half of verse 9 through 11. Let's read it now. You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all, and He is in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come this morning praying that Your Spirit would work in our hearts through Your Word to convict us and draw us ever nearer to Jesus Christ, our Savior. It is in His name we pray. Amen. Now, last week, if you were here, you know that we covered a very convicting text of Scripture. Right before this is a representative list of sins, and they range from sinful actions all the way to the sinful thoughts and imaginations and emotions that are behind them. And those are the sins, that, as we move into this text, that Paul is saying we take off, we put away like an old set of clothes when we are made new in Jesus Christ. These so-called vice lists in Scripture are used by the Holy Spirit to convict us, to lead us to repentance. We don't need to read them and be condemned, we're to read them and recognize our own sin and turn from it and trust in Jesus Christ, because He is the gift of God that paid the debt that we owe. And in His righteousness alone, we stand before a holy God. And as Christians, our aim, our goal in life then is to serve Jesus Christ, to represent His holiness and righteousness and justice to the world while at the same time demonstrating the love of God and the mercy of God to those who will trust in Jesus, who rest in His promise. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not to make us perfect in this life, we know that sinless perfection is not going to be reached. In fact, the very next verse, that was from 1 John, the very next verse tells us if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We know that we struggle. Repentance is a daily, sometimes hourly, sometimes minute by minute reality in the life of any follower of Christ. But we repent not out of fear, but out of love. Out of recognition that we serve the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate, who the Bible says, for our sake God made to be sin, though He knew no sin. He was perfect. So that in Christ, should we be found in Him by our faith and our trust in Him alone, we might become the righteousness of God. So the promise to all who will turn to Jesus in faith is real. It is immediate. And it is eternal so that we can be reconciled to God through his perfect obedience and his substitutionary death on the cross, of him bearing God's wrath that we deserved. And at the moment we turn to him, we are partakers in his death and his resurrection. That is the truth, essentially, of Colossians 1 and 2, all the way up to where we are in our text this morning. But we recognize, as we hit here, that we are still works of progress in this life. We're new men and women on the inside. But we live in corruptible, temptable flesh. Scripture confirms that, beloved, we are God's children now through our faith in Jesus. But what we will be has not yet appeared. But we are growing. And so we receive this instruction to clothe ourselves. To work on the outside, our thoughts, our beliefs, our words, our deeds, such that it reflects the new man or woman that is identified with Christ on the inside. It's a new spiritual identity. There are two sides of the coin, both leaving and mortifying or putting to death sin in our lives and pursuing righteousness to honor Jesus Christ. So we'll cover this text this morning as quickly as we can in three headings, our positional reality, a work in progress, and otherworldly unity. So let's begin with our positional reality, verse 9, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You see in this that this is in the past tense. The verbs remind us of something that has already taken place through our faith in Christ. And the picture is really of changing clothes. That's what we see here. Now, this reminds me, as someone who was a parent of, at one time, young children, and I think this would hold true, I think, for everybody, but maybe your kids walk in newness of life from the time they're born. But this reminds me of when you get your kids all cleaned up and you put on their nicest clothes, you're getting ready to go to church, and then you and your wife, and you go and get ready, and you come back out, it's time to go, you're in a hurry, and the kids are nowhere in sight. And you only see them out through the window, and they're playing outside with sticks and rocks and rolling around with the dog, and usually you run out and you have something similar to this to, this to say. Stop what you're doing. You're already dressed in your clean clothes. And you're getting them all dirty before we go. And then depending on the extent of the damage, you often get to do it all over again and clean them up and get a new set of clothes. And that pretty much pictures us, as I thought about it, as our relationship to God, right? We have been given this new self. We're to walk in righteousness. And Apostle Paul is reminding us here that we have this positional reality. We are made new by our faith In Him, We're made new the moment you recognize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. That indeed the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think I heard Noah quote that in the testimony this morning. We're new. We have put off the old. We've put on the new at the moment we recognized our sin and turned to God and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we rested in the sacrifice that he made once for all, for all of his children. But we still struggle. Romans 6 paints the picture for us. We know that our old self was crucified already with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. In Christ Jesus. It is a continuing work. That is why I say repentance is daily. The new self is different than the old self. The old self that we put away, says Ephesians, belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Not just corrupt from sinful desires, but we can easily convince ourselves that what is evil is actually good, especially in the cultures that we live in, which is no different than the first century The new self is the result of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that indwells all believers. It's what we refer to when we say a person is born again. All Christians are born again. There's no such thing as a distinction between a Christian and a born-again Christian. You are one or the other. But it just plays on the analogy that Jesus uses when he's talking to Nicodemus about birth. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So it is an accomplished work and those who are saved, and it's already been done. It's a beautiful thing to walk in this promise. Titus chapter 3 affirms that God, our Savior, saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, not baptism or any other good deeds that we do, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so now the old self... And the new self give us this picture. They're illusions. They show us what this positional reality we occupy is. Because there are only two positions we can be in, in life. We are either children of Adam, or we are alive in Jesus Christ. There's actually no neutral position as you walk through this life. You either remain a child of wrath outside of the kingdom of God, or you live in Christ Jesus. You are a child of God. The Puritan, Thomas Goodwin, is often quoted for this. He says, There are but two men that are seen standing before God, Adam and Jesus Christ. And these two men have all other men hanging by their girdles. You will be in line between one of them. Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, tells us that sin entered the world through the rebellion and sin of Adam and Eve. And those who remain in Adam who don't turn to Christ, and we are all born in Adam, will remain in sin and subject to God's eternal wrath. But Jesus Christ is the answer to humanity's biggest problem, which is separation from a holy God by our sin. And in the obedience of Jesus, both in his life and his sacrificial death, reconciliation is made available. Righteousness, forgiveness of sins, and new life is granted to all who believe. The Bible tells us, for as by one man's disobedience, Adam's, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. You'll never stand in the presence of a holy and righteous God on your own. You must stand in Christ Jesus. As Paul told the Corinthians, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We're, we're all born in Adam. The psalmist David wrote, In sin did my mother conceive me. That is where we start. But in Christ, through our spiritual union with Him, we have died to our old self and we have been resurrected new. Not by works, not by things we do so that no man can brag, but by grace and mercy and faith that is granted to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we are new men and women saved by the blood of Christ, and yet there's a but that comes after that. But we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we continue to groan inwardly as we await eagerly adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That is what Romans 8 tells us. In this life, we have been made new in Jesus. The old is dead, the new has become. Our holiness is called for, it is commanded, but we remain a work in progress. That is our second point, verse 10. We have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The old has been taken off. The new's already been put on. But the reality of that spiritual transformation, this new life in Jesus Christ, must be worked out daily in what we do. We have not reached the end of our sanctification, and we won't in this life. Rather, it tells us we are being renewed in the knowledge after the image of our creator. The renewal is ongoing. We started with the past tense of salvation, sanctification is ongoing, and it can be difficult at times to be set apart, it can require sacrifice. And what this speaks of is the renewal of the heart and the mind, spirit, and body, and it is a constant pull by the Spirit towards obedience and holiness and away from the enticements and the entanglements of the world. It requires diligence, it requires reliance upon God the Holy Spirit working through the very Word of God. To the Corinthian church, Paul wrote, so we do not lose heart. That's how he begins, so we do not lose heart. In other words, our confidence in Jesus Christ and his saving and sanctifying work can never waver. He's with us for all times. But so we do not lose heart because the reality is, he says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And this light, momentary affliction, the difficulties in the world, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Our salvation there is instant and permanent, our spiritual maturity is not. We must grow. In knowledge, And we've hit that word before, and we're not going to revisit the Greek, but just to say it is a deep knowledge. It's not just a surface-level knowledge of facts, but it is a life-transforming knowledge that grows, and it drives behavior, and it has both the heart and the mind encompassed in that term, and the object of all knowledge. The object of all knowledge is to discern and put into practice God's holy will for our lives and the life of His church. And that is at the very heart of the call to faithfulness. The call that we read in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your entire life is an act of worship or it is an act of rebellion. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The knowledge that we seek, it does not come from thin air. It will not come from your TV or the world. It does not come from fanciful notions of what God is like, what we hear all the time in culture. I think God would, and it's based on nothing but human desire. It is not based on false claims that are driven by what sinful people want most in their heart. It is always, always revealed in the Word of God. All of which we know is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped and complete for every good work that God has ordained for our lives from before we were born. Peter calls out in his epistle, For believers to be like newborn infants. That's how we start. We're children coming to faith. Long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, he says. That by it you may grow up into salvation. It is the word of God illuminated in our hearts by God the Holy Spirit that provides the nourishment for growth in this life as a follower of Jesus Christ. The commentator William Hendrickson gives us a picture that we can relate to and so it, too, is used often for making this point. He says, when a man is led through the waters of salvation, these are ankle-deep at first. It's a wading pool. But as he progresses in life, they become knee-deep, and then they reach the hips, and finally, they're impassable by swimming. I think we all know this. We don't, we don't start at the deep end of the pool. Little kids often want to, and parents are the ones pulling them back, saying, no, you're not ready for that at this point. We don't start in the deep end, but we don't need to fear the deep end. We should long for it. We live with the promise that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is what we trust. And there is no growth in the Christian life without an increase of knowledge of God which comes directly and only through his word. And this is a gift from God, his word. His word. But it is also a tool used by God to renew us daily into what? What is it that we are being renewed into? What is the goal for this new man or new woman who is baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection in Christ, who lives new in Him? The verse tells us the objective is a new self that is renewed after the image of its creator. It's renewed in the image of God. That is a consistent part of the testimony. We all know one half of a passage because it's on coffee cups and posters and gets used all the time, but the whole thing tells us that it is the same, and this is Romans 8.28. Most know this off the top of their head. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, and we usually put a period there, and we make his purpose our purpose, and we run off and think that this promises some result to us. But the rest of the verse... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Our lives, our Christian lives in Christ, are lived as a progressive work, always being renewed in the image of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. You only need to think back to Colossians 1, right? All things were created through him and for him. And that is the image into which we are being renewed. And the goal naturally takes us back to the very beginning, Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Every single person conceived in the womb is a unique creation of God bearing his image. But That image was marred, it was morally compromised, it's physically limited, we get old, we get sick, we ultimately die, we suffer, all under the weight of original sin that brought death to humankind. And yet we look upon God as merciful because even when he pronounced the curse on Adam and Eve for their rebellion and their disobedience, he gave us the promise in Genesis 3.15 that through the seed of a woman, pointing forward to the virgin birth of Jesus, the Christ, the deliverer, the Savior, we would be saved. Something that we'll celebrate in less than a month. And we should always be thankful. I know I am and blessed, that God picked our time and place in this earth, that we get to look backwards upon the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that we can truly know the love of God that we love to talk about. Because the Bible tells us, in this the love of God was shown to us, it was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. That is how we know the love of God runs that deep. And the Bible tells us there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name among men given from heaven by which we must be saved. It's only Jesus. If you are alive in Jesus Christ by repentance, by faith in him, turning from sin, then you are born new. And this new self will be conformed to the image of Christ, faster in some, slower in others, never hitting the end mark until that final day. But we will regain bit by bit through sanctification, the holiness that God intended for us. And it's going to continue. And this new life in Christ that's set apart from the ways of the old life, the ways of the world, is a lifelong journey of discipleship, of following Jesus. And that discipleship and transformation takes place in the community of the church with all God's children, all who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And what makes this so unique, so otherworldly, is that none of the distinctions made by the world exist in the family of believers, the body of Christ, the church that is called together to worship him. And that is our final point, otherworldly unity. Verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. And that exists here. Where is here? That's really the question we should ask. Where is here? I think that's the one we need to know because we know that here is not our culture. Here is not the world that we live in. Here is not a utopian society promised by secular humanism. There's never actually existed throughout history a society where love and unity existed across all racial and social and cultural boundaries outside the church of Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus is denied disunity and hatred, They grow, and they grow together with all sin. And I was reminded of that just this week. I was having a conversation with a dear brother in Christ. And it's always surprising to me because even in our community where I think we live pretty isolated from all of the things that happen in the world, all the troubles we read about in cities and things, I was confronted with stories of hatred and cruelty and disrespect. And why? Why were these things there? Because God, in his infinite wisdom and perfect goodness, chose to create each of his image bearers uniquely, differently. None of us is the same color. We all look different. We think different. We have different minds. But you see, the marred nature of unregenerate and sinful people, desperately in need of the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, And that is the thing to always keep in mind that these people who are cruel and hateful, they are desperately in need of seeing the Savior. They show their hatred of God by attacking God's image bearers who look different than they do. The answer to this problem is not found in the world. It is not going to be found in critical theory. It won't be found in cultural Marxism. It's not going to be delivered up to you through secular humanism. The answer is Jesus Christ and the transforming power of the saving gospel of God. Here, where this unity exists then, is living in Jesus Christ. Here is the place all reside who know Jesus in a saving way. Here is the heart of men and women and children who trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins, who have been born new by the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, and who seek to know Jesus Christ and follow Him. Jesus said, in looking at this community, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Is this just on Sunday morning? Is it just when we gather together to worship God? Of course not. It it is in all of life. It is in school. It it is at work. It is in the home as you raise your children. Well, what kind of love? What kind of love might this be? Jesus commanded, just as I have loved you, you are are called to love one another. That's a tough bill, right? That means you have to love people intentionally, on purpose. You've got to step in for them to protect their honor. It's to love sacrificially. That This may hurt me, but it's for the good of my brother. You have to put the needs of others above your own. Remembering always that Jesus gave his life. He didn't just give his life for those who were nice or loved him. No, Romans 5, 8 said God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, but while we hated God, while we hated his righteousness, he gave his life to save us and called us to him. It is a very tall order, but among followers of Jesus Christ, our text says there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. We are being restored into the image of our creator. And among those who belong to Jesus Christ, we constitute a new humanity, a new culture. And all the distinctions in the world may still be evident among us, but their effect and their power and in many ways their relevance are completely obliterated. And we've got to zip through to the end because we don't have a lot of time this morning. But before I go too much farther on that, let me just say that there is a flip side to this. We don't want to think that all differences are to be ignored. The beauty of God's creation and the wonder of Jesus Christ's church is that we are all different. And our cultural differences, the color of our skin, our looks, our gifts, our talents, they are to be recognized as positive things, beautiful things. They are the image of God that shines all around us. We see Christ when we look at each other. That's what drives the love of 1 Corinthians 12... 12 through 31, you can read that later, it makes it abundantly clear that God calls many differing people into community and family and church. Romans 12 gives a shorter summary of that, for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And you see in this, we are different. God designed us that way. But we are united in Christ. Every one of us is equal and everyone starts off equal. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We desperately need a Savior. And for those who have turned from sin and trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord, again, we have experienced God's grace. We've believed in Jesus and we are all equal yet again. Equally saved. Equally being sanctified. Regardless of any visible difference between us. Romans 10, 12 says, There is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. Let's just rip through these. Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, that's the first category. You have to recognize, and it's hard in our culture, but in the first century, these two groups, Jews and then everybody else, its Greeks or Gentiles just refers to every non-Jew, They were separated by racial or ethnic barriers that nobody thought was ever possible to cross. The people looked different. They talked different. They worshipped different. They would not eat together. They wouldn't enter the same household. The Jews would never enter the house of a Gentile. The Jews would shake the dust off their feet if they had to walk through Gentile territory to get to where they were going. The Gentiles were viewed by the Jews as those God created simply to go straight to hell. That's what they looked for in this warrior Messiah. That's why they denied Christ. They wanted that. And it went the other way too. And you see that worked out in Acts chapter 9 and 10 and 15, this bringing together of these two groups. The only solution then to racial hatred like this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. It's only in Jesus that we have true brotherhood, a true family, true reconciliation. Ephesians 2.14 says Jesus is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 16 tells us that it is through the cross, through the shed blood of Jesus, that the hostility was killed, that exists between people who are outside the family of Christ. So what can you take from this here? There is no distinction. Well, you can take this. You will not end racism, or cruelty any more than any other sin in the world by running around and telling people it's wrong. It is wrong and you should tell them. But you need them to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. That is how you stop that. You need them to turn to him. Because it is in Christ that they will be transformed, that they will be renewed, that they will seek the salvation and the goodwill of their brothers and sisters, that they will see God's image in each man, woman, and child. The next category is barbarian and Scythian. This is the cultural barriers. This is socioeconomic barriers. The barbarians were looked down upon by everyone, both in the Roman world and among the Jews, the religious world. The very word in Greek is actually making fun of the way they talk, and that's where we get the word barbarian. And the Scythians, on top of that, were hated even by the barbarians. They were the worst of the worst. You look at old writing that comes from the first, second, and third century, and it was used as an insult often in arguments to refer to somebody as a Scythian. They never bathed. And when I say never, I mean never. They never bathed, not infrequently, but never. That was part of their culture. They drank the blood of their enemies. They did grotesque things to those who were dead on the battlefield. They were referred to as the historian Josephus as little better than wild beasts, subhuman, not worthy, but not when saved by the precious blood of Jesus. It's hard for us to see the power in this. God says you are now members of one body, and it's going to include Jews and Gentiles. It's going to include barbarians. And yeah, it's even going to include, as your brothers and sisters, Scythians, people that you would never want to be around. And people are going to look at your solidarity, my family, Christ, the church. And they're going to see the love for one another and they're going to marvel and wonder at that. They may hate you for it, but they're going to marvel at it because they will not understand what has occurred among these people. How is that a living truth? These are people who hated each other in the world. And yet they were baptized into the same fellowship. They worship together. They love each other. They stand up for one another. They participate in the Lord's Supper together. This is an otherworldly unity, not something that can be created by anything but the blood of Jesus. The last one is slave and free, and we don't have to spend, I think everybody gets that. It was not a lot different in the culture of that time. I think it was Aristotle who referred to slaves of that culture as a tool, as property, not human. So this is not massively different than what we're used to with that term. But in Christ Jesus, there was to be no distinction. No distinction whatsoever. The, f- the slave and the free person, they stood arm in arm. And if we had more time, we could go through the stories of the martyrs because it is a beautiful picture of how those distinctions were ripped apart and, and slaves and the free people stood on equal terms for Christ as they were shredded and ripped apart. There's no differences like this among Christians. There can't be. There's no distinctions or partiality that can raise its sinful head in the church or among us outside the church because Christ is all and in all. Jesus indwells all believers through the Holy Spirit and so all are equally valuable. Equally valuable. 1 John 4.20 warns if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He's actually not saved. He, He doesn't know that the work of God has not occurred within his heart. It goes on to say that it is actually impossible, it is impossible to love God and hate a person that God loved so much that he sent his only son to live and suffer and die on a cross to purchase their eternal life and their forgiveness. That is how much God loved them. We are called to do the same. You have to see Jesus Christ in the heart of your brother and sister. You have to long for the saving message of Jesus to be brought to those who don't believe. They need it. Jesus Christ is all. He is everything. We witnessed this morning three baptisms. People who publicly are making a statement that they follow Jesus Christ, that they seek to obey him and please him, and they pictured for us in baptism the transforming work of Jesus Christ, the transforming work he renders in every heart, stripping off the old coming out resurrected, new life in Jesus Christ. You can't convince an unbelieving world to stop its sin and rebellion. That's not our call. But what we are called to do is reach them with the saving gospel of Jesus Christ because Jesus is all-sufficient. He is all-powerful. He is the preeminent one who must be in first place. He is the one who created all and holds all together and rules for all eternity. And if you'll turn to Jesus Christ, He will save you. And He will never leave you or forsake you. He will equip you to shine brightly in this world, being His ambassador, shining light into a dark place. So stand firm on the Word of God. Grow in the knowledge of our Savior and love sacrificially your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me just close with this reminder Since we're coming off Thanksgiving, something we can be thankful for, Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him, those who love him, worship him, approach him as God. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Wonderful promise. Is Jesus Christ your all? he is, then live for him in accordance with his word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your mercy, grateful for your love, and that we might know it in Jesus. Lord, it's beyond our comprehension that you would send your Son to live perfect and die for us on the cross, to reconcile sinners like us to you, to allow us The freedom from sin to grant us the wonderful benefit of standing cloaked in the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ so that we might enter eternal life and experience your glory. Lord, we do pray that these sins that you mentioned would never be named among your people here, that we would walk alongside each other, sharpen each other, and always draw each other to a faithful walk with our Lord Jesus. That in us, they would see the love that Jesus expressed for his people. That the world would be drawn to us. They would see something different when we stand up for the weak. That they would see something different when we stand united as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would equip us, give us a healthy dose of your Spirit and that the Holy Spirit might give us boldness, both illuminating Scripture, convicting us and drawing us to repentance, but enabling us to speak truth in love to a dying world. We're grateful for those who were baptized this morning, Lord. We pray that you continue your mighty work in the hearts of Noah and Bella and Andre, that you would indeed make them solid lights to us, even while you equip us to walk alongside them and support them in their growth and maturity that comes through knowledge of our Savior. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.